Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, today I want us to look at cultivating thanksgiving, cultivating thanksgiving. Did anything fill your heart this week so that you couldn't help but give thanks for it? Did anything cultivate in your heart this week? I was afraid not. All right. Um, Or at least only one of you. So I'm going to have to give you a little insight into our exciting nightlife in order to share this first illustration. But um, Kristen and I, we, we party pretty late into the nights, most nights during the week. And um, one of the things that we do is uh, we watch some game shows. I know, y'all are impressed. I can tell. Have you seen the, it's the new version of what I call Plinko, Planko. It, you remember the little game on The Price is Right where you drop the thing and it bounces around and where does it land? Well, there's one now where they have the balls that fall, right? And they have all these, you know, I mean, maybe 10 or 12 different categories that they could fall in, anywhere from a dollar to $10 to $100,000 to a million dollars. Well, as I was thinking about this message, to be quite honest, this is a message that's kind of been brewing for a number of months in me. I'm just kind of wrestling with the idea that there seems to be so much less thanksgiving in our world today. And and thanksgiving seems to be something we just skip right over, go straight from Halloween to Christmas. And and, um, that, that, just as a pastor, there are indicators that concern me of that. I'll put it like that. Well, we were watching this game and I'm thinking about this message and, 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 a couple is playing this game. So there's a team of people and one of the team members goes up into a booth where they cannot hear what's taking place in the main floor and they are, they're completely quarantined off. But they have to answer some questions during the game and answering those questions gives some money to the team as a whole. They don't really know how well they're doing at any given time. They just have to guess at the answers and they don't even know if they get the answers right. The other team member is down on the floor and they're actually playing the game, dropping the balls in and watching them go and watching the money rack up in their risk account. There are two accounts of money that are given. One is guaranteed money. So every time they do something right or a portion of every ball that drops, it goes into the guaranteed money uh, account. The other account though is will you risk it account? right? And so when the money or when the balls drop and it goes into the $200,000, $400,000, a million dollars, it goes into the risk it account. Well, this is all fun and they're making idiots of themselves dancing around as if they have any control over where the balls are going to land. And towards the end of the game, a very interesting thing transpires. They send a contract up to the team member who is in the booth, who has no idea what is taking place. The person downstairs knows how much is over here and how much is over here. And the person in the booth has to decide, and I'm, am I going to sign the contract and be guaranteed this amount of money or will I tear the contract up and risk it for this amount of money? It's really interesting. 
Well, this one couple who they, at moments they have these emotional appeals to one another. It's the dumbest thing you've ever seen. It's kind of like the weight loss shows where they start, you know, bleeding their heart to each other. You're like, come on, man, just show us the workout. And, 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 and at the end of the show, they come down and with this team, the wife was the one playing on the floor and the husband was the one in the booth. He's, that's a lose-lose situation, friends. I mean, there isn't anything he could do that's gonna make him go, you know what, you saved it for us, buddy. No, no, you lost it for us is all you can do in the booth. So when he comes down, here's what he doesn't know, but she does know. There's about $150,000 in the guaranteed account, okay? There's over 1.7 million in the risk it account. What did he do? What did he do? So he comes down and she's like this. And he goes, baby, you know I love you. And you know, we hadn't had a lot in our life. And she's going, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you can just see her jaw. Is, the pressure is just tensioning up through her teeth as she clenches her teeth, just says, get to it, boy, get to it. And he says, knowing that we hadn't had a lot, but what we could do with, with this amount of money. And he said, I, I think I knew which questions I got right. So I was kind of keeping track of how much was in that guaranteed account. He said, I signed the contract. Well, she has to keep it together because she has to tell him how much money was in the guaranteed account and how much was in the risk it account. So about the time he announces that he signed the contract, it's written all over her face, you bluttering idiot. I can't believe you would sign the contract. But she says to him, oh baby, you know I love you too. You want $150,000 for us, but there's 1.7 million in the other account. And I mean, his face just goes flush, you can tell. About that time, my wife turns to me and she says, don't you ever sign the contract. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. I'm not going to the booth. That's all I'm saying. You see, I think Thanksgiving wanes because we are completely bombarded and consumed by all that we could have but we've forgotten how to be thankful for what we do have and Psalm 100 is a very helpful passage for us and I'm hoping to cultivate some thanksgiving among our people in our hearts and lives as we go forth today let's go to the passage and let me read it and then I'll return to the message Psalm 100 records, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. May he be blessed by what his word produces in us. Psalm 100 concludes a series of psalms that begin with chapter 91, 10 psalms of 
thanksgiving, of praise. And very likely this was a section of their hymn book of the ancient Hebrew people that they regularly recited. And when we get to chapter 100, it's kind of the apex or the the chorus, the refrain, if you will, of this section of Psalms. It's something that they sang regularly, not unlike what we might consider our doxology. And so it was a refrain for all of their worship. And as I began to think about this passage of Scripture and this idea of cultivating Thanksgiving, I I got to thinking about just the season of the year, obviously, that we're coming into. And I began to realize, you know, Thanksgiving is not not just a Christian holiday. As a matter of fact, it was a holiday that that is not really even celebrated outside of, of the United States. It's a holiday that was put on our calendar by our, by our own uh, um, um, uh, successes in the founding of this country and this nation. And, and what it represents is, is no less important. And please don't hear me saying anything about the holiday itself. But my point is, what about us as believers of Jesus Christ that transcend only our citizenship? And how is it that this speaks to us? Well, I, I think far a far greater importance for us than it being some kind of a holiday that we as Christians distinctively celebrate, the scriptures present thanksgiving as a posture of life that we should live in every day. And that's where my concern lies, friends. Thanksgiving is our right response to the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 instructs us, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Jesus Christ. This is the will of God. Don't don't miss the importance of of giving thanks, not as an appropriate response uh, for a holiday of the year or a season of the year, but the will of God to be fulfilled in our life. And on the other end of the spectrum, we are also reminded from Romans chapter 1, verse 21, that the failure to give thanks to the Lord is a first indicator of our straying from him. And here we have a spectrum that amplifies for us the importance of cultivating thanksgiving in our life. You see, thanksgiving that marks our lives as God's people demands far greater attention than we too often give it. And so what I'm aiming to do today is to cultivate thanksgiving in our hearts and in our lives in this season. Here's what I want you to walk away with today, that the Lord God fills our lives with thanksgiving as we fill our life with his godness and goodness. He fills us with thanksgiving as we fill our life with his godness and goodness. You know, in an age when rage is more the anticipated and arguably the more favored response, it should tell us all is not well in this world. That that people don't look for ways to give thanks anymore. They look for reasons to be angry. And not only do they look for reasons to be angry, and mild rage is no longer acceptable. It's got to be off the charts. It's got to be destructive. It's got to cancel somebody or something. And in an age of that, it should tell us we're missing something horribly. As it occupies less priority, maybe on our calendar or uh, maybe in our culture at large, a far greater concern is that it occupies far less priority from our lips 
and the way that we live our life. And so the question comes, how do we cultivate more thanksgiving in our hearts so that it pours forth from our lips? And I want to offer to you today four practices to cultivate thanksgiving in your own life. And we see the first practice, worship the Lord, in the first two verses. As the psalmist begins with an appeal, not just for some people, but for all the earth to praise the Lord. This is what he is saying. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Like he's summoning all of creation as well as people because the word tells us that God is worthy of creation and uh, of worship rather and all creation praises his name. And the psalmist is recognizing the worth of God in the very summons to worship that he begins with here. It's an invitation into the most wonderful of all of life practices and the most wonderful of practices that engages the whole of our being. There is no sense in which the worship of God is left dormant in worshiping him, in bringing praise and honor and glory to him. Why? Because the one who alone is infinitely and ultimately worthy of all glory and praise is the one into uh, into whose presence we come. You see, worship of the king of majesty is the true source of unending thanksgiving. And the first practice that we look at here, worship the Lord, likely provides for us a strong indication for why it is there is so little thanksgiving, not only in the world. We shouldn't expect of the world what is true of God, but we should expect of God's people what God has said should be true of us. And so I say to us today, in some way, a mild rebuke, but in most ways, an encouragement, friends, an exhortation to strengthen and build up the body of Christ. We struggle with thanksgiving when so full of everything else, we become deplete of God's real godness and goodness filling our life. Let me say it a different way. In other words, thanksgiving begins to wane in us the more our worship becomes infiltrated by false idols, false hopes, and false beliefs. Anything that consumes our affections, our loves, anything that consumes our attention, our energies that is unable to replenish in us in greater measure than it received from us or demanded from us is a false hope, it's a false idol, it's a false belief. And ever so subtly, we, we see creeping into our mind these doctrines of, of something that we hold God accountable for that his word has nothing to do with. And so we place an expectation on God of what he ought to do for us above what he is worthy of from us. That's a false belief. That's a false hope. When God becomes the one who delivers for you as you wish, instead of drawing you into what he is worthy of. And ultimately, that's what a false idol does, friends. It demands more from you than it is able to provide for you. 
so that when you worship or you assign worth and value to it, whether you're singing or participating or investing or whatever it may be, whatever form of worship that it may derive from you, when you invest your worship into it, its return to you is less than what you gave to it. And how do you know that? You feel that first. Oh man, that, that return just didn't, Like, I gave a lot more than I got. You see, God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. He always returns more than we gave. And in ways we didn't give and could not have imagined to. You see, how often we approach God not as he is worthy to be approached, but rather as we are feeling about him as we are feeling even about our life or about how we, it's okay for us to approach him however we choose. And when we do this, we beckon of God for the priorities of life that we've determined rather than honoring him as the priority of life that he is for us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew instructs, and all these things shall be added unto you. We allow everything in the world to determine how it is that we think, believe, and approach God in worship except the revelation of his truth, which often accommodates, but far too often does not define in totality for us. You see, we allow far too little of his nature, his character, and his being to motivate our worship as simply worthy Approaching God in this way reveals just how much it is that sin ever so subtly actually controls our whole being. Because the one who is infinitely worthy of all honor, glory, and praise is to some measure and in some degree or manner regarded as less than or sometimes not even worthy at all from us. How is this? Because sin has ever so subtly crept in. And caused you to believe things that aren't true. Caused you to feel things that are inaccurate. And caused you to do things that simply aren't in accord with his word. When we approach God in any of these ways, we reduce our worship to little more than a tool of leverage to get God to alleviate some shortcoming of our own false worship. You see, friends, worship is when we come before God to ascribe to him of all that we know he is worthy of. How? Because his word reveals himself to us and his spirit illumines that revelation within us. And in the worth uh, that we ascribe to him, we are filled more by him than any comparison of what we have offered to him. You see, what Psalm 100 does here is very enlightening. It makes our worship an end unto itself instead of a means to an end. In other words, communing with God in true worship is the most important thing that we do, just being with him. Not getting from him, not leveraging to convince him of something, but just communing 
with him. And how often is that the sole purpose that we come before him? Is it wrong to bring our request and our burdens? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, we're commanded to. Cast all our cares upon him because he cares for us, Philippians says. But why do we do that? Because we're coming to ascribe to him a glory and a worth that he and he alone is worthy of. Our worship to God is not a means to an end. In other words, we don't come to be worshipped so we can be a little more inspired to go and do on our own, to go and think on our own, but rather it is an end in and of itself to be with God. You see, that, that's what the whole of salvation is about, that God is instructed throughout the Old Testament. That, that word for tabernacle, do you know what that word literally means? It means a habit, habitation, existence, presence. And, and, and the whole purpose of God is that when he saves us by the gospel of Jesus Christ, his spirit takes up residence within us. He tabernacles within us. He resides in us. Why? To be with us and for us to be with him. When scripture beckons us into the presence of the Lord as Psalm 100 does, it is to give our all in adoration and praise all that we can give for all of who he is and to find this, and this is the distinguishing characteristic of him as God, that he is always more. He is more than we. And his more that is produced in us overflows in thanksgiving for all things. You see, worship leads us more deeply into the eternal wonder of God. And that brings us to the next catalyst for cultivating thanksgiving in our heart and life. Verse 3, to ponder his godness. When we come to the Lord to worship him, we are led into pondering his godness. Know that the Lord, he is God. And when we acknowledge and confess that he is God... The opposite of that is equally and simultaneously true as well. We are not. We are not. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. You see, worship that draws deeper into his presence leads us to pondering the wonder of his godness, friends. How quickly we can acknowledge he is God, but too often without the weight of glory that he and he alone is due. This whole idea of pondering is something I learned in college. Don't know that it was always the best practice or the best activity, but in other words, what it is relating to here is one that I learned. A couple of times a semester, uh, my fraternity would put out a late night call. Now, I, in my present days, would have never gotten this call because I don't hear the phone after about nine o'clock at night. I don't hear anything after nine o'clock at night. I, uh, I, I make comatose look lively when I go to sleep. And the call would come late, 9.30, 10, 10.30 at night. And it was a summons to all the men of our fraternity and an address or a field would be identified several miles out of town. And we would all jump in our trucks and cars and convene somewhere in the darkness of night in some farmer's field to do what? To ponder. We would sit on the back of truck tailgates, talk about mindless stuff, whatever it was about, 
And there we would sit sometimes for hours on end. And I am convinced in those moments, the world problems were not moved at all. I don't think we ever even offered a good way to address it. But let me tell you what did happen in those moments. Lifelong friendships. Why? Because we just sat there and let each other talk and listened. And then we talked and they listened. Or we talked over each other and that's the way it went. You see, friends, we fail to give thanks to God because we forsake pondering who he is, his godness. There is no shortage of what to talk about when you ponder the godness of God. That's what it says. He is God. Like that this is no pretend. He's not fake. He's not dead. He's God. And have you taken just a moment to pause and to consider his godness that he is God. Surely in our church life and in the history of church, many of our hymns do the same. Many of you are familiar with the old hymn that says, when upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed. I don't know what tempest-tossed means anymore. We don't use that terminology. But the second line helps us. When you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, Really? Got to name every one of them? Can't we just use categories? He's blessed us generally, specifically, personally, relationally, and that's about enough for today. Because when you count them one by one, the song says it'll actually surprise you. Oh, what the Lord has done. When should we do this? Well, are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy that you are called to bear? Count your many blessings, every doubt will fly, and you'll be singing as the days go by. So amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged, God is over all. Count your many blessings, and angels will attend, and help and comfort give you to your journey's end. Count your blessings. Name them. See, I'm learning. I'm learning crowd participation. You're going to have to learn it too. I don't do this for nothing. <laughs> Count your blessings and see what God has done. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. True worship always leads to pondering more the godness of God. He is God. Have you given that title to anything else in your life this week? Have you given that status to something else to elevate it to a point where it desired and drew from you all of your affections and all of your energies? Where you could think of nothing else but your love for, your desire for, and your pursuit of this thing. And if you haven't learned it yet, which you probably have, that thing will fail you. It will hurt you. It will crush you. 
But God will not. Why? Because he is God. And then look what it says as we ponder that. He made us. What wonder. In the pondering of God, all of a sudden, we've come into the story. Oh, here I am. God made me. Yes, friends, with all of our complexities and all of our intricacies of the human body, of the human mind, and of the human soul, of which humanity from its very beginning has studied and and has yet to find any end in the wonder, the glory, and the majesty of his creation. He made us. Isn't there a reason? Surely there is a reason if the one who is God made us. Well, that reason is given. We are his. We are his. All of our strengths and weaknesses, those things you love most about yourself, right? Don't you love your weaknesses? How many of you thank the Lord for your weaknesses this week? God, thank you that I make a complete idiot of myself at these moments. I'm so thankful for that. Uh, Be truthful. Right? All of our successes and our failures. He made us. Does that mean he caused every failure? No. Let me tell you what it does mean, friends. Because the Bible tells us he rejoices over us with gladness. He quiets us us by his love. And he exalts over us with, listen to me, look it up, Zephaniah 3.17. Loud singing. And why does God sing loudly? Because he doesn't like weak singing. Let it be heard. Joyful noise. Make it. That's what he wants. And that's what he does over us. You see, so often we only value strength and success. But God says, I'm not threatened by your weakness. And I'm not ashamed or embarrassed of your failures. Why? Because you're mine. I made you for me. Just the way you are. We are his. We are his. Because he made us. And then it tells us he redeemed us. Ponder this, friends. He redeemed us. What sin separated, God made a way to reconcile. And to make us his very own. So he could care for us. So he could comfort us. So he would dwell within us. This is the God who is worthy of all worship. What greater wonder to ponder than the godness of God. Worship draws us to ponder more deeply the truths of God and all of his godness. To cloak our whole life in the wonder of who he is and of all that he has done. And to remember that we are counted with him. With him. There is no higher worship than when we simply linger to ponder more fully all of who he is and all that he has done to make us his own and be proud of it. Singing. If you're quiet enough, you can hear it. But before you hear it, you will feel it very deeply in your soul. For the very smile of God, the countenance of God is pleased with you, Christian. 
He loves you. Pondering God's godness cultivates from every affection and attention, every energy and emotion to pour forth from us in thanksgiving unto him. And thanksgiving is not merely the fruit of knowing God, but the key to entering more into his presence as well. Look at verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his Name. I love what that tells us in the blesses name. It means we've got nothing to offer, but what he gives to us, we return to him as a blessing to him. Commune in his presence is that third practice to cultivate thanksgiving. You see, the courts of God are no ordinary place where just anyone can enter, friends. They are what I would call restricted worship space. You don't get in unless you get over the restriction. And the only ones who are welcome are those who have had a way made for them. Otherwise, you don't get in. When I was in seminary, a, a seminary friend of mine and his five-year-old son went to a Texas Rangers baseball game. They had just completed the stadium the year before and it was all of the hubbub in the Dallas-Fort Worth metropolitan area. And we said, man, we've got to see this. And so we, we invested deeply in those $5 tickets to see it. I'm telling you, you could see everything from up there. You couldn't make any of it out. You were so high and, and you kind of had, you know, altitude sickness from being so far up and you got a great view of the sky, but you could see it for $5. That's what we did. Tickets in the outfield, way up. Well, when we got finished watching the team warm up, we decided, I wonder if there are some better seats. The stadium, it was like a Tuesday night. The stadium was not full. And could we actually find some better seats? Lo and behold, we did. We got up and we wanted this young man, this five-year-old young man to experience his first professional baseball game. We took him down and we got right behind home plate. Oh my goodness, right there are three seats right on the aisle about fifth row back here we go there was no one to stop us we went right down sat down fifth row play ball we're about to watch the Texas Rangers from behind home plate we were excited about the third batter that came up not deep into the first inning there was a little tap that occurred on my shoulder sir could I see your ticket oh I've got one I've got one. It's not for these seats. I'm being honest. Honesty is always the best policy. It's not for these seats, of which he already knew that, but he didn't let me know that he knew that. And he said, well, sir, you and your friends aren't going to be able to stay here. You'll have to move. And I went, hey, listen, man, let's be, let's be cool. These, nobody was sitting in these seats. We're not taking anybody's seats. These seats were open and available. Let us just watch. It's for the five. It's for the kids. Come on, isn't this for the kids? He said, sir, you're not allowed to sit here. You don't have permission to be in this section. I went, what? He said, yes, this is the section for the team wives. <laughs> and at that time we looked around, the whole section was nothing but women. All right, we'll go back to our seats. And we left and went back. We, we didn't have access into the restricted areas, you might say. You see, the psalmist records that the courts of God have two distinguishing traits First of all, they have a restricted access. And second of all, the courts are filled with the blessing of his name. There's not just some, they are filled with the, in other words, everybody in there is blessing the name of the one whom they've come to worship. 
And as I prepared this message, I got to thinking about this and it made me wonder, is this the main reason that some people do not find the presence of God more all-engaging in their life? Let me ask you a question. Do you have access to enter the gates into God's court? You personally. I'm getting kind of personal now. Let me ask it another way. Do you often find yourself in church wondering what all the hype is about? What are these people getting excited about? Why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? Let me ask some more. When the name of Jesus is exalted, do you struggle to care? Are you unmoved because he is unimpressive to you? Do you come in for some reason other than to bless his name. You see, you can get into church and you can do most all the things that others are doing and still not be in the court of God. Getting into the church is not the same as getting into the court of God. You will not commune with God in his presence without entering his court by praise and thanksgiving. And friends, the only sure way to get through the gate is to know the one who is the way. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, Jesus says. No man cometh unto the Father but through me. Friends, there is a deplorable false doctrine, false gospel, false idolatry that is purported in any number of ways today that says, in the end, love wins. We're all going to get in. Well, let me tell you something. In the end, love does win. But if you don't put your faith in the one who was that love, you won't get in. And you may spend every day of your life in church. You may serve and you may, you may encourage a lot of people with your presence. But friends, hear me. If your faith and your trust is not in Jesus Christ alone, you will not know the courts of God. Communing with God is a place of restricted access. But listen to me. God never turns anyone away that wants to come in. There's just one gate. There's just one gate. And his name is Jesus. He's the Lord. He's the one who is worthy of all honor and praise and glory. And entering the presence of God always produces a greater outpouring of blessing and thanksgiving. Does God care about your crisis? Does God care about your burden, about your need, and about the things of your life that are going on on a daily basis? He cares more than you do. And he's already made a way to take care of you in the midst of all of them. His name is Jesus. And he's inviting you today into his court. To give him thanks. To do for you what you could never and will never be able to do for yourself. To redeem you. Finally, to bless the name of the Lord in his presence leads us to testify of the goodness to the whole world. Look at verse 5. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. The fourth practice that will cultivate thanksgiving is to testify to the Lord's 
faithfulness. No one enters the courts of God with praise and thanksgiving and leaves with something other than the goodness of God. You see, friends, the more you worship the Lord and ponder his godness, the more you will commune with the Lord and fill your life with his goodness. And let me tell you something. When you get filled with the goodness of God, everybody's going to know it because you're going to make sure of that. God's goodness flows from his godness. He is like no other. His love is not contingent on his children. It is steadfast and enduring. His faithfulness is not finite to us, but it carries forth to all generations. Communing in the presence of God produces thanksgiving in the heart like nothing else. Why? Because he is the one that fills the heart with that which nothing else can, his goodness, his goodness. You know, every marketing ploy in the world knows this, and that's what they aim to do. The one thing people will not do is be silent when they find a deal like no other. It just won't happen. All of social media is based on this fundamental philosophy. How many followers do you have? How many likes can you get? Because everyone says something about good to what you're offering, what you've said, what you've provided or otherwise. And what they do is try to bury any amount of hurt or uh, uh, any amount of negativity so they can exploit the smallest amount of good and make it look as great as possible. Where do we see this in the scripture? Well, Luke chapter 7 records an event. Jesus was having dinner at a Pharisee's house. And he went into the Pharisees and they're sitting around the table. And in that day and time, the table, would, they wouldn't be sitting in chairs. They'd be on the floor and often reclined back on a pillow or something eating from the table. And the Bible records that this woman who was a sinner... You can smell it in the text when you read it. I mean, that's, that's the way the text presents it. Why? There's a reason for that. She was a woman of the night. She was a street woman, you might say. She was a woman who was a sinner, came in, and the, the text records that she came and she stood behind Jesus. She did not demand that anyone acknowledge her presence, but they did see her because it tells us the Pharisee saw her with great disdain. And he couldn't believe Jesus wasn't reacting to her. But she stood at Jesus' feet behind him. And the Bible says that the tears from her eyes began to fall on his feet. Now, when you wear sandals and the roads are all dust, your feet stay dirty. But her, her tears began to wash his feet. And then she took an expensive jar of oil and she cracked it open and she poured it on his feet. His feet. Most people anointed the head with oil. That represents the whole of the person. But she didn't feel worthy to even stand next to his head. So she poured it on his feet. And with her tears and the oil, she dropped her hair. A, 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 a something that women did not do in public among men who were not their husbands. She let her hair down and she began to wash his feet and wipe them with her hair. And the Pharisee who was filled with disdain for this sinful woman. Again, you can smell it in the text if you read it. He said nothing but Jesus knew what he was thinking. Be careful when you're in the presence of Jesus. Jesus said, let me ask you a question. If two debtors are forgiven of a debt 
And one owes a couple of dollars and the other a few million. Who do you think will be more thankful for the forgiveness? And the Pharisee said, oh, that's easy. The one who owed the greater debt. Jesus said, I came in here tonight. You barely bothered to acknowledge me. You didn't offer me anything to wash my feet with. You didn't welcome me in any way. But she came in completely unacknowledged and she anointed my feet with her tears and with her eyes. Who do you think has loved more? And he tells us this, that the measure of our love will always be determined by the magnitude of our recognition of forgiveness. Friends, when you spend time in the presence of the Lord, he fills your life with a goodness you can't imagine, such that he spills over in every way and area of your life to testify to others, sometimes with our tears, and sometimes with the oil of life, so that we can tell all of the one who has forgiven us because he is God and given us his goodness because he is good. Let's pray.